Reality Church is a church striving to be biblical. We pray that this sermon would help you in your personal walk. Be blessed. I'm, uh, I'm actually pretty excited about this after just looking at the first four verses and working them out of 1 John. We're going to be 1 John 1, 1 through 4. I'm, I'm actually kind of excited about what this, uh, this exposition of 1 John holds for us. Because there's some good stuff in just four verses. And if four verses are that awesome, what's, what are we going to see in the rest of it? Um, and I'm actually really looking forward to the last, last verse, my favorite, my, one of my new favorite verses in the Bible. 1 John 5, 21 says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Looking forward to that one too. So, John Owen said this. He said, The foundation of true holiness and true Christian worship is the doctrine of the gospel. What we are to believe. So when Christians, when Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted, true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. Owens, John Owen talks here of, of, of foundations, right? He's talking about foundational, doctrinal things that we need to know. Um, John the Apostle of Christ in this first epistle is absolutely concerned with making sure that his readers are maintaining that foundational belief in the doctrines of Christ. Um, these first four verses really set the scene kind of for the importance of a Christ-centered theology in our Christian walk. Um, now here, the infallible, inspired Word of God, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word, that it is infallible, inspired, and inerrant. We can trust it because it is a collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And it testifies to powerful, cosmic, divine events. It wasn't written by just man's hands. Every word was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every word was breathed out from God. It is authoritative, and we can count on it. God, let us be true to it as we go through it this morning. Remove the veil that we may see you more clearly, that we may understand who you are and what you have said in your word and we may understand Christ and his doctrines more clearly 
God, we thank you so much for your love, for your mercy. And we ask that you would give us that mercy now as we go into your word. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, I absolutely love this introduction. This introduction is all about John's favorite subject. This introduction is all about Christ. And that is John's focus. But there is so much, I think, to grasp here. So I want us to get our shovels, get your Bible shovels, because we're fixing to go digging. We're fixing to see the truth that is, that is contained here in, in these verses. I want to start with verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Let's start where John always loves to start. Brother Jesse read it this morning. In John 1. How did he begin John 1? In the beginning was the word, right? And he begins his first epistle. That which was from the beginning. John loves to take us back to the beginning. And there are two extremely important in the beginnings in Scripture. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? That's the beginning, isn't it? And then John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we're going to get more in depth in those verses here shortly. But I want to look at this one section that he puts in this. Very interesting thing he says. Because if we dig in this, we're going to see some very important stuff. So he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He gives... Eyewitness words to this. If you witness a crime, what is the cop going to ask you? What did you hear? What did you see? Did you come in contact with anything, right? Those are questions that a cop's going to ask you to try and solve something if you're an eyewitness. So let's look at it. In terms of that, what did they hear? John, I like how he, John likes to speak in uh, that, that second person, we. Like, it's not the royal we. He's talking about the apostles. He's talking about the same guys who are writing other epistles and preaching the word in other places. What did they hear? They heard the very words of Christ. They heard things like the Sermon on the Mount. All the blessed ours, right? They heard the parable of the sower. 
One of the greatest parables in all of Scripture. They heard Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He must be born again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He, they heard that stuff firsthand with their ears. They heard the Lord's Prayer. Pray like this. And they also heard the Great Commission. They heard His high priestly prayer where He prayed for them and then He prayed for us. And He said, Sanctify them in Your truth. Your Word is truth. You see, they heard, these apostles heard firsthand all of the most important words ever spoken on this earth. How can I say that authoritatively? When God speaks on this earth, it's the most important thing that can be said. Without a doubt. So, let's go to the next question. What did they see? They saw the great works of Christ is what they saw. They saw Him calm seas and storms. They saw Him walk on water. They saw Him feed multitudes with a few fish and a few loaves. They saw Him heal blind eyes, deaf ears, leprosy and paralysis. And as if that wasn't enough, they saw Him raise Lazarus from the dead. And finally, after he died bodily, because many of them didn't see that because they ran away scared. After he died bodily, they saw him fully alive after he rose from the dead. They saw him ascend to heaven to be seated on the right hand of God the Father. With all authority and power in heaven and earth. They saw that. But what did they touch? I think this is important. This is very important. In fact, this is an essential point of our faith and one of the doctrines that we need to put in our minds as a foundation, period, we must believe this. Are you ready? They touched Christ after His resurrection. That doesn't seem like much, right? Well, guess what? It's very important. Because Christ rose bodily. He was not a spirit or a ghost. He was not a ghost. He was alive bodily. The very body that He lived in on this earth, He rose from the grave in. That's important. Because those who teach a spirit resurrection are diminishing the work of Christ. Because listen, He rose bodily. And the Word talks about how we will raise in the same way. So if He rose bodily, guess what? We will rise bodily and we will follow Him in that resurrection when He returns. To call us out of the grave.
the apostles and the early church found this point to be essential. This point was essential to them. And John next ties all of these points together with an important phrase when he says, concerning the word of life. All this evidence ties to the word of life. First, let's go back and draw the line to the beginning. Remember I told you those verses were important. And the fact that he used that phrase from the beginning, he's trying to tie us back to Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1. Because guess what? All of the apostles affirmed the word of God. Jesus Christ affirmed the word of God. There is only one book of the Bible that is not quoted in the New Testament. There's only one Old Testament book that's not quoted in the New. Esther. That's it. All the other ones, there's at least one quotation out of them in the New Testament. Let that sink in. I don't think we need to throw the Old Testament out. I think we need to use it like God intends for us to. But let's tie that line. Let's bring that line from where John's at right there to where he goes back to the beginning. Because he's bringing the word of life from the beginning. So what was the word of life in the beginning? Genesis 1-1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created, right? He spoke the words. And the words that he spoke came into existence. And those things didn't exist until he spoke them into existence. So how does that tie to John's testimony here? I think there's a very specific truth that we can clearly see in this. You ready? Jesus Christ is God. God the Son. He was present in creation, but He wasn't just present in creation. He was active in creation. John was testifying to the apostles' understanding that Jesus was God. They knew that they were looking at God the Son, the very Son of God in front of them. He proved it all in everything he said and did. He fulfilled every prophecy about Messiah in his lifetime. It was all fulfilled. But most of all, in his resurrection. Because guess what? Only God could die and resurrect. Only God has the power to give life. Only through the word of life that John is preaching. Now let's look at John's own account of the beginning. What uh, Brother Jesse read this morning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is speaking of Christ as the word. That word is logos. Or, if you're from the south, logos. All right? 
This can actually be translated, it's so interesting, I heard it the other day, as the logic of God. Basically, the point is that all God has said to man comes into fulfillment in Christ. All that God has said, all that God intended, all of God's purpose, plan, and will is embodied in Christ Himself. How do we know this to be true? John 1.14. We go on down. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was Christ. All God had ever said and intended. It was fulfilled in Christ. He literally was God's Word in flesh. All His promises, all His attributes, the fulfillment of the plan of redemption, all that God had ever made covenant with man about was fulfilled in one being, that being Christ Jesus, our Lord, God the Son, the very Son of God. And He came and He walked this earth. And that was their testimony. That is what all of their evidence pointed straight to. This is God. This is God the Son. Let's go to verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus Christ is the word of life. He even said it. What did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Can't get any more clear than that. Jesus Christ, who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He is the Word of life. John again testifies that the, the apostles are eyewitnesses to this. We saw it, that's what he said. And that isn't bragging, okay? That's not him bragging. Yeah, we got to see it, and y'all didn't, nanny nanny boo boo. No. He's not bragging. He's telling you. We saw it. We know it to be true. That's important to us. Why is that important to us? The New Testament writings are the writings of eyewitnesses. That is why it's so important for us to believe that the Word of God contained in the New Testament canon is a collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. These are first-hand accounts. These writings are inspired and they have authority for us. That is why these apostles are testifying to it. They write those testimonies down and that becomes the canon of the New Testament. 
So let me jump on my soapbox. Y'all wanted me to go there. I'm going there. The biggest issue that we see when people come against what we say or what we believe is that they refuse to acknowledge the authority of Scripture. So let me just bust it out. You ready? The Da Vinci Code is a lie. It is fiction. It's not historical fiction. It's, I like uh, how one commentator said it, it's hysterical fiction. Because it is out of its mind to think that the Council of Nicaea got together and decided to write this Bible down, throw out books that they didn't like, and just accept the ones that they did. That's ridiculous. And it's easily disprovable. How? Because not only do you look at the books, the historical facts that, guess what? The early church had these books that we have, and guess what? They almost kept them in the exact same order. You know the only difference in the order? They didn't know whether they put John or Matthew first. That's the difference. Because a lot of people wanted Luke to be beside Acts because Luke goes straight into Acts because those are the two books he wrote together as a a two-part series. But the Da Vinci Code is a lie stating that either they wrote the Bible or they decided what they wanted in the Bible at that time. It's a lie. The Council of Nicaea convened to discuss the heresy of Arianism, which denied the deity of Christ. That's why they met. Did they also set the canon of of New Testament Scripture? Yes, they did. Why? Because the early church cherished these treasures that we see in the New Testament. They treasured these testimonies. The Council of Nicaea set the canon not by picking and choosing what they liked, and by de- but by determining, first of all, apostolic nature. Was it written by an apostle or by a very close associate of an apostle stating what they had them write? Two, does it have doctrinal surety? Does this work testify to the doctrine that we have had at that time for about 300 years? Does it testify to the same doctrine? Or does it veer off into left field like the Gospel of Thomas, which ends by saying that Mary Magdalene couldn't go to heaven because she was a woman. So Jesus turned her into a man because anybody turned into a man gets to go to heaven. Also, the Gospel of Thomas was written in 300 A.D. So Thomas didn't write it. So does it have doctrinal surety? And then, apostolic nature, doctrinal surety, and then one of the most important, continual use by believers throughout the early church. These words that we have in our language, they had in theirs. That's the truth. The canon 
of the New Testament is absolutely authoritative. But just writing it as a testimony was not enough for the apostles. It wasn't enough for John just to write it down. They proclaimed it. That's why he says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. We're eyewitnesses and testify to it in these documents and proclaim to you the eternal life. They proclaimed it, and many of them paid for it with their lives. They were killed for it. Why would they dedicate their lives, blood, and treasure to this? To what some see as just a carpenter with some good teachings who, they, who, who the Roman government killed. Why would they dedicate their lives, their blood, and their treasure to it? Two words. Eternal life. They had to share the good news that in Jesus... In Christ, we have eternal life. But not just that. That's not the only reason why. There's two phrases here. With the Father and made manifest. These descriptions only fit one. The most important thing to them was Christ. It's His gospel. It's His story. The entire Bible points to Christ. They knew that they had to preach Christ above all else. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. This is Paul giving the state of why he preaches. For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The Jews wanted a bunch of signs. Well, <laughs> Jesus gave them to them, but they refused to believe them. The Gentiles, they, what did they seek? They saw wise things. They thought they saw high knowledge. I don't know that there's anything more knowledgeable than what Christ teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. It is the quintessential knowledge of God and His interaction with man. It is so powerful and strong. And they preached Christ crucified to them. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews because they didn't like Jesus because He didn't take over the, kick the Roman government out and start a Israel rule. Greeks didn't like him because oh, he, he died. Well, guess what? He rose again. So he was a stumbling block. And they thought, it, and the Greeks thought it was stupid. But guess what? The apostles preached Christ. And he was their message. It was Christ. What he has done. What he has promised. The justification available only through faith in Him. That's what they preached. That was their message. And may I say, we should take note of that. 
in the modern church. Because when we veer off into these cool things and these interesting things and these these things that take the eyes off of Christ, we are going the wrong direction. We will preach Christ in our church. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and we all need it. I don't need to get up and preach to you uh, seven steps to having a healthier marriage. You want a healthier marriage? Let me give you the gospel. Look at how Christ treats his bride. Now you treat yours that way. The gospel is what matters. The gospel, Jesus Christ, is what we preach. And we will not stray from that. Do we do it perfectly? Probably not, because we're not Jesus. But guess what? We're still going to hammer it out. Why? Because we're going to teach the text. I do not want to stand before God one day and hear Him say, Why didn't you just preach my word? Why didn't you just preach what I said? I don't want to stand before God with that. I've already got years to account for. John, in verse 3, let's keep going. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John repeats himself here. He's starting to sound like Paul. Old repeaty pants, right? He repeats himself here somewhat in order to do something very important. He's reinforcing the message. It's the preeminent thing. He's told us three times the message is Christ. We've seen it. That's what we preach. That's what we stick with. It's the preeminent thing. They preach Christ to all because He is their all. But John here brings forward a purpose in this. You ready? Because you're going to like it. So that you have fellowship with us. Fellowship in Christ. Fellowship in His church. One day, we will join all the saints with Christ and we will ever be with Him. And may I say, the reuniting of the church all together in heaven is going to be such an awesome event. For one reason, so that we can finally say, you don't baptize babies. (laughs) Just kidding to my Presbyterian friends who may be listening. 
Can you imagine the glory of that, the fellowship? That you'll get to stand beside that pastor in Africa who stood strong and had his head removed from his body because he loved Christ and it was his all in all. And you're going to get to stand beside him and you're going to get to lift up worship to the God of the universe. You're going to get to rule and reign with him in the new earth. You're going to get to see all of the great saints that have gone before and those who we may never meet. But until then, we need another kind of fellowship. The church. We need fellowship in the local church. Christ set it up that way. The early church understood that. And until recent times, all Christians understood that they needed to be in the fellowship of a local church. In the 1800s, you would not have heard somebody say, well, I can read my Bible at home. Because they knew they needed to be in church with other believers. Or I can pull it up online. I can watch church in my under drawers. That wasn't a thing. People, we need fellowship. And all Christians used to understand this. We need in-person fellowship with like-minded believers in a biblical local church. We don't need event centers. We don't need nightclubs. We need the local church body fitly joined together doing the work that the local church does. So, why should we join a local church, you may ask. I'm glad you asked. Mark Dever, in his books, Why Should I Join a Church? Pretty simple title, right? He gives seven great reasons. And it's in his Church Questions book series. But he answers this particular question with seven answers. Number one, to display the gospel. How do we display the gospel by being in a local church? Local church membership proves that you have repented and believed the gospel as Christ commanded. Number two, why should we join a local church? Because the Bible requires it. Do not forsake the gathering together of yourselves. As the heathen do. Heathens don't like church. Number three. To love other Christians and edify the church. I had an interesting discussion with Pastor James the other night. We were talking about this very topic. And people who don't want to go to church because they just don't like church. They'd rather be at home, you know, uh, watching videos, preaching videos and all that other. They... Um, but man, they don't like church. They don't like that organized church. That would be like me inviting the A-Bears over to my house and having fellowship and enjoying each other. And then I take Brother Jesse aside and I say, 
Brother Jesse, I love hanging out with you. It's so much fun. But I'm not fond of Miss Jolene. I can't, I can't stand her. So next time you come, don't bring her. Do you know what Brother Jesse should do? Knock my front four teeth out. That's what he should do. Because I have just said, I love him, but I hate his bride. And that's what we say when we say, I love Jesus, but I hate church. You're saying, I love you, Jesus, but I hate your bride. The very people he died for. Miss Jolene, I love you dearly. You can come over to my house anytime you want. Let's bring food. Um, We come together, we love each other, and we edify each other. Number four, to evangelize the world. You ready for this? True missions should start one place. Do you know where that place is? The local church. Not some organization with a lot of money to throw at foreign countries. God bless them for sending food and and, and medical supplies, but over and over again, if you listen to true missionaries uh, like Sean DeMar he's talked about it before he said they'll go in they'll drop $250,000 worth of supplies they'll build a building and then they'll leave they've never trained a pastor to go into that building so there's empty church buildings all over South America all over Africa all over the world because we don't evangelize the world because we're not starting with the local church. If you're going to be a missionary, you better train somebody else to take your place when you're gone. Number five, to assure yourself. How do we assure ourselves when we come into fellowship with each other? Because I can look at Brother Jesse. I can look at Pastor Garrett. I can look at Brother Gizzard. And I can say, these are my brothers in Christ. They are in Christ and look at their lives. Christ has them in the palm of his hand and he's never going to let them go. If he won't let them go, he won't let me go. So I assure myself by seeing other believers in that way. Number six. Number six. Number beautiful six. The one that gets overlooked In many churches. You ready? Number six. To expose false gospels. Well, the church is supposed to be nice and not give anybody the sads. So, We don't need to call out people. We don't need to call anybody. We don't need to point. Yes, we do. Do you think John would let Peter sit in heresy and not call him out? We know Paul didn't. When when Peter was falling in with the Judaizers, Paul said, I stood against him to his face and told him he was wrong. And what happened? Peter changed his way. We call it out because I can't sit and watch you 
suffer under false teaching. That's why I have no problem telling you, turn your TV off TVN. Number seven, and this is the main reason, why do we join the local church? Why do we do anything in life? To glorify God. His church glorifies Him. Why? Because Christ set up the church. But John points out the main reason next in the verse. We join the local church. We join into fellowship with them because our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship in a biblical local church is fellowship with God. The, to fellowship in a local church is to be in God's fellowship in the way in which Christ established it. If He hadn't established it that way, then the first centuries of Christians wouldn't have suffered and died to make sure that the foundations were set so that we would know how church is supposed to be done. If God didn't want it that way, guess what? It wouldn't have been that way. It would have been different. It would have been sitting at home watching it on the internet. It would have been uh, in a light show or a smoke show or a coffee shop, whatever. But no, Christ set it up the way that he wanted it. And the early church established what he wanted. And see, that, that's the meat of John's message in 1 John here. And, and, and this message is that the message of Christ is the preeminent thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what the church is set up to do. We testify to it. We proclaim it. We show it. We fellowship about it. We do these things. And that message is what really truly brings us into fellowship with Him. But in the next verse, He gives us a way to apply it to our lives. How do we apply this to our lives? He says... And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That our joy may be complete. What's John's joy? Well, he tells us. He makes it clear. He's written all that he's written to make sure that we see that his joy is complete. The first thing is that the first joy that he has is writing his experiences with Christ and, his, and the teachings of Christ. Writing those things down. That's a joy to him. Uh, maybe that's a little plug in, in our lives to start journaling. Write down some of the things that, that God's showing you and what he's doing. It doesn't hurt to journal. His next joy was this. You ready? Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a pastor, as your pastor, as a preacher of the word, may I say this. Every time I step in this pulpit, I take it very seriously. I don't fear Satan, just as John Knox said. I, I don't fear Satan. But when I step in this pulpit, I have fear because I want to stay true to the word of God and give it to you in the true manner, the way that God has set it up. And every pastor should feel that way. But it is a joy to me to get up here and to break open this word and to dig and to see your eyes light up when something hits home for you or to see you smile when maybe 
which you've been reading this week in the Word, man, this, this really matches up with God, with what God's telling me. Those things are a joy to me. And they were a joy to John. Through all that John went through, through his entire life, preaching Christ was his joy. He loved it. Number three, another joy of John's life was having fellowship with fellow believers. That fellowship that he had. He began it when he, began, when he was inducted into ministry with Christ, when he became an apostle. He's with these 11 other guys. Even if one was a snake, he was with these 11 other guys and he enjoyed that fellowship with them. We should too. His fourth joy was this, seeing people repent and trust in Christ in order to join that fellowship. He rejoiced in the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, right? That's beautiful. But number five, and most of all, his joy was Christ. He had joy in Christ. So in looking at the life of John and what he's written here, in just the first four verses, am I right? Am I crazy here? These first four verses were packed with solid foundational doctrine that's going to help us, I think, throughout the rest of this. But here's the application for us. How do we, tie, how do we apply this, this teaching to our lives? And I think we do it by asking some questions of ourselves. Maybe it becomes a daily ask. Maybe it's something that maybe you ask one question yourself every day. Or maybe you just, you know, are constantly meditating upon this. But first is this. Do we hold to solid doctrine? Because John's joy was writing his experiences with Christ and the teachings of Christ. Are you holding to that solid doctrine? Not straying off into feelings or this one said or that one said or God told me this new thing and all that other... Or, or, uh, you know, purpose-driven life and all those other sorts of things that lead us away from actually just sound biblical doctrine? Do you hold the solid biblical doctrine? The ones that we've discussed today, the deity of Christ, that Christ was all God, the bodily resurrection, that He was all man and He raised bodily, the authority and inspiration of Scripture, the one, that's one that a lot of the others hinge upon, or... Justification by faith in Christ alone. Do you hold to those solid doctrines? Number two, do we find joy in God's Word? When we see those wonderful truths from these eyewitnesses, does it spark joy in your life? Does it, does it give you joy to see these great truths and this, this great Christ who they, who they preach about and proclaim? Number three, do we proclaim Christ no matter the cost? People will spend their lives, their blood, and their treasure on political things and, or on things about their preference of male or female they'll lose stuff for that 
but will we lose stuff for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we too scared to share? I thank God that my work doesn't give me that, that issue, but if they did, I must proclaim Christ. Number four, do we love God's people? Do you love God's people? Do you love being in fellowship with them? Do you love the local church and where you're at right now? And number five, do we treasure Christ above all else? Is he your treasure? Is he your hope and your joy and your, and your all in all? Is he your reason for being and your reason for living? These are all questions that I think we could use in our in our daily devotion to really help us begin to apply some of these principles that, uh, that John is discussing here. Brother Kendall, do you mind going and grabbing our, uh, our nursery folks, please? Before we begin, Lord's Supper, I'd like to pray just for our hearts during this time of, of word. I think that... Uh, to me, I was, I was very challenged, and I think I was, if I'm going to be honest, I was convicted by it. Am I taking joy in what Christ has said about himself it, and, and what these eyewitnesses wrote down? Or am I taking joy in just other things? When my joy and my hope is, is in Christ. And I needed to repent for that. And I hope that we would all be repentant in that way. But I want to pray as we go forward with this. Father, we are thankful for the sacrifices of great men before us to write down these testimonies, these wonderful things that Christ has done for us, the love that he has shown us by dying on the cross to save us from our sins, enduring the pain and the torture of the cross simply to save a wretch like us. There's nothing like that, and we thank you for it. God, we ask that you would help our hearts to see these things, that we can apply this wonderful joy that we should have in Christ to our lives. The joy like the apostles, who though beaten, bruised, and tormented, and hurt, they held on to a joy like no other, the joy that they found in Him. Thank you for that. Lord, if there be any who don't know the gospel, let us faithfully proclaim it, that they may see that they need Christ more than they need their next breath. Sinner, you must repent and trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul, because God will not change His mind. Run to Him. He is your only hope. Thank you, Father, for this day. And as we go into this time of sacrament, God, prepare our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.